0: Morning. I'm glad this is not a tryout for those of you who, (laughs) for those of you who are old enough to remember some things, this tryout, especially with Romans chapter 11, would be a lot like uh, an eight-year-old kid facing a Nolan Ryan fastball. So, um, here's what we're going to do this morning. Well, first, I'll tell you when Ross asked me to preach uh, on October the first, I said, "Yeah, I'm available." And then some time went by, and he said, uh, Romans 11. <laughs> Your availability changed. Yeah, my availability may, may, uh, perhaps should have changed. Romans 11 is really hard sledding. And I just want to come out and, and, and just say that I knew it was going to be hard sledding. You've heard Ross over the last couple of weeks say, remember he said, Romans 8, if it's the greatest chapter of the Bible, then Romans 9 is the hardest. And then sort of under his breath, because I went back and listened to and Romans 11. It's like, oh, okay. So I felt like I needed to, to carry the, get some big guns to help me with this. And I wonder, is anyone here familiar with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just a couple of you. Wow. Dr. yeah. Thank Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England in the 1920s through the late 1960s. And uh, he is like, for those of you who are like big Tim Keller fans or the pastor where I came to faith in Jesus, Skip Ryan, some of the great pastors of our preachers of our generation, they cite Martin Lloyd-Jones as being one of the most influential preachers they'd ever encountered. And so I thought, what a great opportunity. I'm going to go and just search for Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons and listen to them and prepare so it I, uh, turns out he has an app. It's mljtrust.org. I'll make a little plug there. But first I jump on the web, and I find, I find his, a website for him. And I do a search of Romans 11. Fifty-seven sermons on one chapter of the Bible. And so that left me with quite a dilemma. But first, so I start listening to it. I, mean, I couldn't listen to all of them, but I start listening to them. And uh, it was a tremendous help to me. All of these very difficult concepts and theories started to come together more concretely. But the more I listened, frankly, the more of a hindrance it became. Because now I knew too much. Like, right, I was learning about why these five translations inserted the word but. But they shouldn't have, you know, all all of these things. And and so here I was with this dilemma, and I'm going to just share with you, what that dilemma is, it was, number one, I could take a whole bunch of information that I have learned over not quite 57 sermons, but quite a few, and preach from now until about Wednesday afternoon. And we can take a couple of bio breaks and maybe have pizza brought in. Or I could go really high level, try to condense a lot of truth into a little bit of time and get out of here before our kids go nuts back in the children's ministry area. Okay, so I resolved that dilemma by saying we'll do the latter, we'll do the short piece, and I'm sure that comes as a great uh, comfort to you. I'm sure it comes even a greater comfort to those who are watching some of your kids uh, back in the, in the children's area. All right, so we're going to, in just a moment, I'm going to read some of Romans 11. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want to walk through sort of the framework of how we're going to approach this. And the very first thing we're going to do is I'm going to give you the context, the sort of the lead up to Romans 11. And then the next thing I'm going to do is address the two key questions that the Apostle Paul, or as Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, the mighty Apostle the, the, the Apostle Paul, the two key questions he's going to ask about what is the future for Israel? What is the future for Israel? And I'm going to give you the answers to those things. It's first that God's rejection of them is not total, and then that God's rejection of them is not permanent. So keep that in your mind, because this is going to get really choppy as you go through. And so just if you have that framework, you might be able to pull up a little bit and be able to track. And then lastly, we're going to focus on implications for us Implications for us. What does it mean that there's something that God's going to do with Israel? And how does that impact us? All right, so if you wouldn't mind praying with me, and then I'm going to ask everybody to stand, and we're going to read some of Romans 11. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God of heaven, you know that it is not in me to do this. And I pray, Lord God, you would make me low so that you would be exalted and that as we are confronted with your awesome plan, that we would yield to it. That we would yield to you. That we would yield to your spirit. That we would exalt Jesus and know and truly know that your gifts and your calling are irrevocable. That your love is eternal and that your goodness is everlasting. Lord God, I pray that we would encounter you this morning. And, We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, if you please stand. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read the first uh, 15 verses, and then I'm going to jump over and read a few verses, beginning with Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, which is a false god of the time. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by the base, no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And this is the next great section, the next great question. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. You catch that? That's the second time. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And now jumping to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob." And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So back to Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of his sermons, he covers five verses, and he he finishes reading, and he says, Just five verses. And he says, Very well then. Obviously, we will not be covering all of that. So... (laughs) We're going to try to be just a little bit more ambitious, but in doing that, we're going to end up, I'm going to to fly it at such a height that we're going to miss a lot, and I apologize for that, but I will be very happy to take on some of your questions about it afterwards. All right, so first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the context. You may remember two weeks ago, Ross preached on Romans chapter 9, and do you remember he was talking about how uncomfortable it would be for us because he was talking about this idea of God's sovereignty in salvation. Do you remember that? And we focused on this idea of the doctrine of election, that we are saved not by our merit, but we are saved by God's mercy, his choosing us. And he very helpfully asked us to go back and look at John chapters five and six to get a sense of some of that idea. And I just want to quote Jesus's own words from John chapter 6, 44. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said about this. No one can come to me Unless the Father draws him, and by the way, some translators are more strong on that word "draw." They say "compels," but no one Jesus says can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay, that was Romans nine, and that's this idea of election of God's God's mercy on us, not our merit before Him that bring, that, that gets us salvation. And then he moved into Romans chapter ten. In Romans chapter ten in some ways in our, I think, our finite minds makes us think it's a little bit in conflict with Romans chapter 9 because we move from this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation into human responsibility for salvation. And do you remember what our human responsibility is? It's faith. It's faith. All this thing from the five solas that we were talking about this morning, sola fide. It is faith. It is that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Uh, and in, in that, in the end, we are all sinners in need of mercy. And that we get our forgiveness of sins, forgiveness from God through faith in Christ. But we have to exercise that faith. Well, Paul, that's how, that's how Romans 10 sort of rolls through. And then Paul was confronted with this really difficult topic. But what about Israel? What about God's chosen people? Because in Paul's time, what they saw was, they saw that the word of God was spreading like wildfire among Gentiles. But it wasn't among Israel. It wasn't among the Jewish people. And that raised a question in people's mind. What is God going to do with his people? Is he done with them? By the way, in my own testimony of coming to faith in Jesus, I wrestled with this issue. Because I dove in, and I'm studying the scriptures, and I'm like, but God, what about Israel what are you going to do with Israel? These are your your people. You brought them into the promised land. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you have a promise for them, and you made covenants with them, and the patriarchs, and Jesus Christ himself comes physically through the flesh, through the line of David as promised. What are you going to do with Israel? It's a really complicated question, and Paul's going to answer that question as we start really with two additional questions. He's going to focus on what is the role for Israel? And so we're going to do this. First, we're going to look at Romans uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through uh, through 10, and then we're going to pick it up in a second section, beginning at Romans 11, verse 11, okay? All right, so let's start with uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Here's the question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And when he says that, he means Israel. By the way, I don't think he'd call them his people if he was going to reject them. Spoiler alert. Has God rejected his people? Answer, emphatically, by no means. God forbid. May it never be. Like, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. And then Paul's going to do something almost like a prosecuting lawyer. I'm a lawyer who's putting on his case. He's going to marshal all of his evidence, all of his proof, and he's going to prove to us why it is that God is not rejecting Israel. And so pick it up uh, in the second half of verse 1. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So the first proof point is that P- Paul is saying, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew. Surely God is not rejecting the Jews if he has taken me, especially one who was a persecutor of the Christian church. And the second thing he moves, he moves beyond the personal and he starts to move into the historical, what, the way God has treated his people throughout the ages. He says, "God is, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? By the way, This is a great warning for us. Do you not know what the scripture says? Like we need to know what God's word actually says so that when we confront the issues of our time, we can look at it not in a framework of, oh my goodness, we are wheels off, but to look at it in the sense of the overarching plan and promises of God. And so what he says is, do you not know? Have you not read the scriptures of the situation with Elijah? Do you know who Elijah was? Elijah was a mighty prophet of God. I don't know how many hundreds, maybe even a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And while he was a prophet, there was a wicked king named Ahab. Are you familiar with that wicked king's name? You might be more familiar with his wicked wife's name. What's her name? Jezebel, right? We still use that term, and we don't mean a kind thing when we use that term, right? And you had this wicked king and this wicked queen, and together they did wicked stuff. And God brings a drought on the land. He brings a famine on the land. Elijah, this is in 1 Kings, right around chapter 17 or so. Elijah does some amazing stuff for God. Rain comes back. The Prophets of the uh, false gods are destroyed. Everything's looking like it's great. And then Jezebel threatens Elijah's life. And he's horrified, and he runs. And he is under the impression that he is the last faithful follower of the great God, the living God, Yahweh. Back to Romans. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Do you hear that? I alone am left. I'm the last one. And what does God say? But what is God's reply to him? Verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then he goes on to say this, So too at the present time, so Paul's contemporaries, So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a lot wrapped up in just those couple of sentences, but let me tell you what's happening there. Paul is identifying three different ways that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has not rejected his people. We already talked about the first, and that was Paul's own personal testimony. But now we see the second one, this history of God and his treatment of his people, that even though, by the way, I hope this encourages you, even though we can look out on a world that looks totally wheels off, where institutions are crumbling, where leaders fall, where leaders shouldn't be leading, where where there's racial animus, all of these things, where there's a greater divide than in my lifetime that I can recall, we can look out at that and say, wait a second, God is still sovereign. God is Lord. And I can look back in the Bible and say, I cannot say I'm the last one or this small group are the last ones. Why? Because God promises a remnant. Look at what he's done in history. And look what he's done at the present time. In Paul's contemporary days, at the present time, I mentioned earlier, it wasn't only Gentiles come into faith. Do you remember Pentecost? Do you remember in the beginning of the book of Acts? Remember a mighty wind rushes in the spirit of God and it says, what, thousands of people got saved when Peter got up and preached? Who were those thousands? Were they Gentiles? No, they were Jews. And then the Bible recounts other instances. Peter preaches thousands coming to faith. Those thousands were Jews. They were God's people. They were Israel. And so God was demonstrating he is not done with his people. And then there's this last piece of that little, all that packed into one little verse that, that, that uh, Paul uses when he says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. We're back to Romans chapter 9. God's election. God is not done with his people. God chooses them. Are you tracking with me? Right. You tracking with me? Now, I want you to ask yourself, especially as we read these next couple of verses, why does Paul take such pains to go into this length of detail about answering the question, whether God has rejected his people Israel. Cuz he could have just said by no means. We could like the CliffsNotes version or sorry for younger kids SparkNotes version and been like by no means. Okay, next issue. But he goes through all that. Why? Cuz now he's got some hard things to say. Beginning in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. We went through all this in Romans chapter 9. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. Let that sink in for just a minute. God gave them a spirit of stupor. If you're wondering if Paul made that up, he didn't. He's quoting from Isaiah, an Old Old Testament prophet. Isaiah 29, verse 10. And then when he quotes David from the Psalms, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. A stumbling block. Remember that when we get to 11, verse 11. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. All right, what is God saying? This is a hard truth. That God, God himself has hardened the hearts of his own people. Hard to receive, isn't it? That's really hard for me to receive. But it's God's word and it is true. And what we're going to discover in just a minute is that there is a reason for that. Before we get there, though, this is why I think Paul takes pains to write all the proof points of why God is not done with his people. Because I can tell you, if I were a Jew, I might just have jumped right to verses 7 and 8. And rejected the whole thing. But if I knew, if I really knew my Bible and I knew that God had always preserved for himself a remnant, it might actually inform me. It might actually encourage me to know that God is not done with his people. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? All right. That's this first section of, has God rejected his people Israel? And the answer is, he has not rejected them totally. There is a remnant chosen by grace, by God's sovereignty. But he has hardened them. And then we're going to get into this other thing. In the second section, beginning at verse 11, why? Why has he hardened them? Don't you want to know? I certainly did. I ask, did they stumble This is verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is this permanent? Is it going to be forever? Will their hearts be hardened forever? And Paul so graciously uses the same emphatic terms that he used before. By no means. It is not permanent. Listen to what God is doing. Instead of giving proof points, he's going to say this is God's purpose in in doing it. He says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, think about that. Do you hear that? Salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews. Jealous. There's that word again. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? We're going to come back to this issue of jealousy in just a moment. What I want to focus on right now are two terms that Paul uses here. In verse 12, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, meaning if Israel falls temporarily, so that Gentiles might be saved, how much more then will their full inclusion mean? Wow. What is, what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, Paul is saying that it's not just going to be a remnant down the road. It'll be all of Israel. And by the way, theologians really debate over whether all of Israel means every last one of them or the overwhelming majority. I'm just going to say all Israel. I'll quote the Bible and be safe with that. And we'll figure out exactly what that means maybe in a Bible study. But all of Israel, their full inclusion. And later on in verse 15, for if their rejection, which is only temporary and only partial, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life From the dead, that the call is that in the future, at some future date, God's chosen people Israel will be back. And you've got to be asking yourself, why is this God's plan? Why is God doing it this way? is it? Is anybody else perplexed about that? Like if you read Romans eleven, like why would God choose to save Gentiles? And then to use the saving of Gentiles to make Israel jealous like what what I don't understand what that means so that, so that they might be saved well we're, I'm going to tell you <laughs> through their trespass in verse 11 through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles God's plan has always been to save the world Amen. I'm going to say it again God's plan has always been to save the the world. That's right. How do I know this? What was Abraham what was God's covenant to Abraham? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who, who dishonor you. And then what? In you all ready? All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Fast forward some 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth, and there was a prophet named Isaiah, and I often refer to his book as the Gospel According to Isaiah. He says this in in, uh, chapter 49, verse 6. It's almost like, I love this chapter of the Bible, by the way. It's almost like you're eavesdropping on a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It is one of the most remarkable things as you read through it. And it says this, Verse 6, chapter 49, verse 6 of Isaiah. He says, meaning God the Father, says to his son, the Lord Jesus. And now I'm quoting. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's, that's easy stuff, is what he's saying. I will make you as a light for the nations, which also can be translated Gentiles. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth, do you see how it was God's plan all along for for His salvation to extend to all of mankind? But what were the Jews doing? What were the Jews who were followers of Jesus doing at this time? If you are a, if you are a student of the Bible, I hope you will spend a lot of time in the Book of Acts. I just so benefit from it personally, and I want to remind you of Acts chapter ten. Do you remember Acts chapter ten? It's it's when Peter encounters a Gentile man, a devout follower of the Jewish God, but a Gentile, a Roman, a centurion, and he shares the gospel with him. Do you remember this? In Acts chapter 10, I'm going to turn there. Peter, the mighty apostle Peter, who walked with the Lord Jesus, has a vision. He sees a sheet come down from heaven. He hears the voice of God. And, and God says to him, what I make clean, do not call unclean. Do you remember this? Right. And at the same time that, that Peter has that vision, God gives this man, this Gentile man, Cornelius, a vision. He says, hey, there's a guy named Peter way over in another city. Go send out your boys to bring him over to you. And so he sends out his boys, and Peter is awakening from his trance, and he feels the Spirit of God saying, hey, there's a couple of guys who are going to knock at the door. Follow them. And so, wow, God is moving amazingly, right? He's telling Peter, go. He's telling Cornelius, go and get. And so Peter goes back with these Gentile men, goes back to see Cornelius, and I want you to hear his first encounter with Cornelius. Listen to this. This is Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 28. And Peter said to them, now he's he's in the house talking to Cornelius and his Gentile family and friends. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Is that what the promise was in Genesis 12? Is that what Isaiah said in, in, in Isaiah 49? No. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. Imagine if that's the way we greeted people here at Centennial Church. I know that we can't stand people like you, and you don't belong here in our church, but God told me I had opened the doors. So what do you want? That's effectively what Peter is saying to him. And Cornelius says, all I know is I had a vision, and God told me to get you, and have you come back here, and... We're waiting for whatever it is you have to say. And Peter shares with this man, Cornelius, and those in his home, the gospel. That God sent his son from heaven to die for us. And he he culminates with this in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He's sharing the gospel with these guys. And do you remember what happens? Bam! While Peter, verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, Peter had six of his buddies with him, the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Almost reluctantly, like Peter's like, Would somebody please stop me? No, I've got to do this. God is on the move. God begins to save the Gentiles. And it's critical that he does this through the Apostle Peter because then the Apostle Peter is going to go back to Jerusalem. And listen to this. Pick it up in in chapter 11 of Acts. You would think... I mean, like, if we came back, if everybody who came back from the mission trip in Haiti were like, man, I got to tell you, people were getting saved. There were drug dealers getting saved. There were prostitutes getting saved. There were single moms getting saved. There were kids getting saved. Wouldn't we all be like, yeah, wouldn't we? Gosh, come on. Wouldn't we feel like really jazz if God would move in that, in that way in power? Well, what happens when, when Peter gets back and talks to his boys? Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, Judah, Part of the land of Israel. Not to the ends of the earth. In Judea. They hadn't moved much. Heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the Jews, the Jews who were followers of Jesus, criticized him, criticized him. Peter! Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Do you remember what Peter did? Peter, this is the same Apostle Peter who walked with Jesus. This is the same Apostle Peter who walked on water for a little while. This is the same Peter who, when he's outside the temple at Solomon's portico, he sees the man who's been lame from birth asking for alms. And do you remember what Peter says? He says, gold and silver have I none, but what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And what happens? He's dancing and laughing and praising. Right? He gets up. This is the same Peter who God uses to raise a young woman named Tabitha from the dead. And with that resume, the Jewish brethren, followers of Jesus, condemn him, criticize him. Do you see that? The Jews had not been, the Jewish Christians had not been doing a great job of sharing the gospel. Paul is, is uh, makes this absolutely clear. Again, back in the book of Acts... In Acts chapter 13, he shows what's happening. He says, we need to take the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which was radical thinking at that time. Do you get that? Do you get how radical that is? If they're going to condemn Peter for taking the gospel to the Gentiles, how radical it was for Paul to say in Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to whom? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And Paul executes on God's plan of taking the word of God beyond just the Jewish people and out to the world by taking it to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And again, I'm going to read a little bit from Acts, and this is Acts chapter 13. And Paul is in a a city. He goes in, as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue. You just read Acts over and over again. Paul goes in a new city. He goes in the synagogue, and he shares Jesus, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah come to save the world. And he finishes preaching, and it says, As they went out, this is Acts 13, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged to continue in the grace of God. I mean, it's so encouraging, right? Verse 44, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, boldly, saying it was necessary. Not it was desirable, not even that it was good. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Remember, to the Jew first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles and also to the Greek. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying the same verse that I quoted from Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. By the way, that should sound a little bit familiar. Do you remember the last words of our Lord before he ascended into heaven? What did he say? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the outer ends of the earth. God's call is for the world to be saved. And he is using the hardened Jews as a means to reach the Gentiles. But he's not done with the Jews. Thanks be to God. Amen. The Gentiles get saved, but what about Israel? Well, back to those verses that I read before, that there will be a future time where there is full inclusion, where they will be totally accepted. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, this is what Paul says talking to the Gentiles still. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer, and he's quoting the, from the Old Testament, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant when I take away their sins. There will come a time when every Gentile who is going to believe, believes. And then we are going to see a revival among the Jewish people, a revival among Israel that will beat anything you can ever even imagine. When all Israel, it says, has their sins forgiven. How are they going to get their sins forgiven? Is it by pursuing God through the law? No, it's going to be by faith through Jesus Christ. I want to pause there for a second. I think that answers the question. I hope that answers the question, what about Israel? God has a plan for Israel. And it's a good one. What does that mean for us? What are the implications for us? Well, I want to come back and look at this word jealousy that appears a couple of times. That somehow, when Gentiles, and by the way, I venture to say that most of us, if not all of us in this room, would be Gentiles, non-Jews, who follow Jesus. That when Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, it is to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, there, I think there are a couple of ways to look at the word jealousy. I think it's just like we saw in Acts chapter 13 and you'll see elsewhere in Acts where Paul is bringing the word of God and there are mobs and riots and violence and beatings and, and stonings and everything you can possibly imagine because it says the, the Jews were jealous. And I think that is a kind of jealousy, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here when he says jealousy. I think the jealousy that he's talking about here to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that he might save some of them is a very different kind of jealousy. And I'm going to explain it using some really simple human nature. Who here has kids? And I mean kids plural, more than one. Or grew up in a home where there were you and at least one other sibling. Is that everybody pretty much? All right. Hypothetical, I have an older brother named Craig. I have a GI Joe. that It's mine. And it's been sitting in that corner for six weeks. I haven't touched it. I haven't looked at it. I don't even walk over in that corner any longer. But guess what happens as soon as Craig goes over and gets what's mine? What do I do? No, no, that's mine. Give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. I want that. That's not for you. You can't have that. Do you see the human nature in that? Do you see how I was provoked to jealousy? It was there for me all along. It was there for the taking for me. I could have it any time I wanted, but I neglected it. But then, if somebody else gets it, I'm jealous. All right, for those of you who are teens or a little bit older, and you can't, you don't, you're not as close to that because, especially because you don't have young children. Maybe even a little bit older than teens. Girl likes boy. Boy does not like girl back. What might a girl do in that instance? she might feign showing her affection to somebody else. Why in the world would she do that? Why? What, would co- what is she trying to do? She's trying to make the other guy jealous, the guy that she likes. She's trying to make him jealous. All right, that is, by the way, we're that bad. We are that superficial, right? And God knows that about us. And so this is what I want to talk about is the kind of jealousy that God wants to evoke because of us. It's actually beautiful. And I can think of two things. The first is love. What did Jesus command us? We shall love one another. And then what did he say? How would we be known? By the way in which we love one another. How's your love? And I'm not talking about the love in your own family, which by the way, I get it goes up and down. I'm, It goes up and down. I'm not so great either. But how is your love? Especially in this world that is so divided, the animus is so thick, we can't even have decent conversations about difficult issues without accusing somebody of being evil. How is your love? I used to be in a men's Bible study, and it was one of the most awesome things I've ever done. I think it might be the most awesome thing I've ever done. Uh, stayed in this Bible study for years, and it was essentially a bunch of white suburban professionals and a bunch of primarily African-American recovering drug addicts who were ex-cons. And I told you this one of the other times I preached, we would meet in this grocery store, and we met in the grocery store intentionally. We wanted people to see what was happening. It was intended to be very, very visible. And people were so moved by what was happening, they sometimes used to buy our meals. Like we we would, you know, we'd show up at the cashier and be like, hey, uh, somebody already paid for y'all's meals. So touched because they would see white men and black men, rich men and poor men loving on one another, hugging one another, sharing with one another, buying for one another, doing for one another, loving one another. It was so powerful. And I remember one particular Friday morning, we met on Friday mornings. I remember one particular Friday morning, there was a new guy in the group named Daryl. A new guy in the group meant he just got out of jail. And sometimes they would get out Thursday nights and they'd be there Friday morning. And I remember Daryl, I could see the look on his face. And we were talking about this passage. We were talking about jealousy. And I said, Daryl, do you see something here that you want? I could see it on his face. He goes, yeah, yeah. I said, what is it? He goes, love. That is love. Do you see that? Do you see how attractive it is? Do you see what a magnet it is? for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in this world of Charlottesville and Ferguson and all these other things, that we can love one another so radically that it glorifies God and causes others to be jealous so that they look at us and say, I want what that guy's got. I want what he has. I want what she has. The second example is actually knowing God. Did you know that was possible? Read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. For more insight on this, it's fantastic. But actually knowing God. And this one, I think, is, is powerful for everyone. But I know of a particular story where it was powerful to a, a young Jewish man. I, I brought a book with me uh, by a guy named Ron Cantor. Does anybody know who Ron Cantor is? My wife didn't even raise her hand. Jeez Louise. Ron Cantor. You might know his, his cousin who's a little bit more famous, Eric Cantor. Former Speaker of the House, the Congress? Anybody? Nobody knows? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else get the news? Is there any news going on? We Round the clock, for goodness sakes. All right. Ron Cantor grew up a young agnostic Jewish man, young man in Richmond, Virginia. He did not believe in God, and his lifestyle reflected it. Drugs, booze, girls, you name it. And his best partying buddy, his best friend, was a young uh, was a Gentile kid named Brian. And midway through their senior year in high school, Brian puts his faith and trust in Jesus. And a profound thing happens. I brought with me this book that Ron wrote. It's called Leave Me Alone, I'm Jewish. <laughs> Ron today is a Messianic Jewish preacher in Israel. And it is his life's call to bring his people, God's people, back into the kingdom of God following Jesus Christ. And this is what I mean about knowing God and how attractive we make the gospel through it. After This is, this is Ron's uh, own testimony. but Nancy and I met Ron. He used to come and preach at our church every now and again when he was in the States and just a really a, a, a great guy. He wouldn't remember me from Adam, but he was really awesome. And this is part of his testimony. He starts off with a prayer he has prayed. God, I believe you are real. I didn't believe this nine months ago, but I do now. You must show me the truth I 've got to know is Jesus the Messiah? Wow. This kid now, at this point he 's in, in community college, still partying like crazy, but trying to get over that and trying to live a righteous life so he can be uh, have a relationship with God. Then he goes on after his prayer, after many months of wondering, I had finally come to the conclusion that the God of Abraham was real. <laughs> Yet I could not find a relationship with God in traditional Judaism. Even fasting on Yom Kippur, which ended yesterday, even fasting uh, on Yom Kippur didn't seem to bring me any closer. I wanted more than a religion. I wanted God. I wanted to know him. My best friend Brian had had a radical transformation in his life midway through our senior year of high school and claimed to know God. Even my rabbi didn't claim to know God. In fact, a conversation years later left me thinking he didn't even believe in God. Get a redhead of no, don't miss that, a redhead, Gentile. A redhead of no consequence from Richmond, Virginia, exuded a relationship with the Almighty that I had never seen in anyone before. And he claimed it was through Jesus the Messiah. Hence my prayer is Jesus the Messiah. This is our call. How are we doing? How well are you loving one another? How well am I loving you? How well do we exude a relationship that we actually know God? How many of us say, do I even have a relationship with God? How many of us can say, people can point to me and know that God is real? Can point to Jason and say, I want what he has. Or to Todd, or to anyone else. I'm way over time, but I'm going to shoehorn just one more thing in. Let me tell you about a little, two ex- experiences here in this church that have encouraged me immensely. I'm looking for Corwin, and I don't see him. Is Corwin? In? Corwin and Schutz loves God. You ought to hear the way he talks about kids who don't know Jesus in his school. He, it breaks his heart that they don't know Jesus. And by the way, it should break my heart that my heart is not broken about kids who don't know Jesus. Or Kim Buford. Kim, are you in here? You ever pray with Kim? I feel like I'm cheating in a sense by listening to somebody's intimate relationship with God when I hear Kim pray. Would that would be true of us all of us. God's call for us is so amazing, it is so powerful. And if we are not experiencing that love and if we do not cannot say with confidence that we know God, you better ask yourself a question, do I Ross warns us almost every week, you know, we come from, we're in Texas and we're in church each Sunday. He is trying to stir us up, to stir our spirits up within us. Because God makes it absolutely clear elsewhere in Romans chapter 11 that if we don't have it, we might be fooling ourselves. Just like those hardened Jews had been fooled into believing that they knew God. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but what I am talking about is the danger, the thinking that since my granddaddy and his granddaddy and my daddy all knew Jesus and came to church, that my Sunday attendance means I'm in. As Ross warned us recently, just because we are standing in the garage doesn't make us a car. Just because we're sitting here doesn't mean we're believers. God wants you to know him. It's not a secret. God wants you to feel his love and his power and he wants to use you each and every one of you somehow by exuding this relationship that by the way you cannot stir up on your own you need to seek Jesus and maybe you need to join Ron Cantor in that prayer is Jesus the Messiah I'm a sinner who needs mercy help me Jesus and maybe you can be one component part of somebody else's story that they were made jealous because they saw the relationship you had with God and said, I want that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, forgive my presumption. And I pray, Lord, that we would know you, that we would truly know you, that your spirit would overwhelm us. Jesus, come down now. Overwhelm us in your power and in your love. If we have been hardened, break the hardness, Lord God. Take away the spiritual stupor and help us to look upon Jesus, to receive him and to praise him and to love him, to love others. God, I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Help us, please, oh God, we are weak. We are but flesh and blood, superficial and sinners. Open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts that we might know you, the living God. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.